start a series in the book of Jonah a little bit. Um, I want to give you a real quick little synopsis as to where we're at, and I'll read a, a couple little passages that we'll look at this morning. Uh, in short, the story of Jonah is about a great God uh, who's also a great deliverer, and God basically calls Jonah to communicate and share the message of his deliverance to a group of people that basically, for all intents and purposes, are his enemy. Jonah hated them. God loved them. Just kind of a little bit of the ongoing irony within the book. So God basically is this big, expansive heart for unregenerate, pagan-worshipping, idolatrous people. And Jonah says, I don't. I want to keep my home clean and uncluttered by pagans and idol worshipers and bad people, people that have black hats. I have a white hat. I have a white robe. Everybody else is dressed in black. I want to keep my house nice and tidy. And God says, no. And so Jonah basically ran away from God. And in the process of running away, goes down to a ship. The ship basically is on the verge of sinking. Jonah ends up basically asking people to be thrown, throw him into the water, which is really another way of saying, kill me. Jonah was actually looking forward to dying. In other words, committing suicide to not have to actually let his heart expand. And yet God graciously, all right, God graciously caused a big fish to swallow Jonah up. We talked about this a little bit last week, that God oftentimes uses uh, different forms of deliverance, things that, and they're, they're his grace. God graciously delivered Jonah from death and really from the own destruction of the idols that they were causing within his own heart. And so it's from within the belly of this great fish that chapter 2 takes place. We looked at the first uh, few verses, around verse, uh, verses 1 through 7 last week. We're going to finish up the rest of this uh, chapter this week, uh, chapters eight, or verses 8 through 10. But it's a, really a prayer. It's almost like a psalm of Jonah singing to God or praying a prayer to God of deliverance. And I, I want to read this to you, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll begin to uh, get to work taking a look at this passage. So verse 8. Uh, Kind of halfway through or almost towards the end, latter end of Jonah's prayer, here's what he says. Those who pay regard to to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Let's pray. God, we ask you right now, you'd help us understand what this passage has to show us about Jesus. He's our deliverer. God, we can learn facts, fun little Bible facts that never change our hearts. We can learn trivia about the Bible and still be just as stingy and rude and arrogant and hateful and condescending as anyone else. And God, what we want is we want to be changed. Rather than condescending words, God, we want our actions to be able to know what it looks like to go to people that are hurting and pick them up. Rather than hate, God, we want to have that hate transformed into love. Rather than cynicism, we want that to be transformed in a red, hot, fiery love and affection for you. God, only the power of the gospel has the ability to work these Good fruits out in our lives. Left to ourselves, God, all we have are our own little vain idols that we trust in. So we pray, God, for your deliverance, not to just begin with them, whoever them is in our lives, 
But God, let it begin with us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This prayer is a uh, prayer of deliverance. And I'm going to just, in essence, jump right in. And I want to take a look at specifically three things that we can look at in these three verses uh, that Jonah talks about with regard to this prayer of deliverance. Because the reason why we know it's a prayer of deliverance, another word, maybe some of your tra- uh, translations actually might say that uh, in God comes salvation. Some translations say deliverance. But the word deliverance, salvation, the phrase, I was saved, right? All of those mean the same thing. All throughout the Bible, they all mean the same thing. Um, being saved can mean uh, being saved from the belly of a great fish. Being saved can also mean being saved from the wrath of God or being saved from hell. Uh, it, it, it just depends upon the context of which that particular word is. And the important thing to understand about whatever form of deliverance or salvation or saving happens to the individual Uh, One thing can be certain in every case, in every circumstance in the Bible, that the object of salvation, or the one who brings about salvation, always is God. He's always the one that brings about salvation. So whether or not it's Israel wins a battle by their power, in other words, by their military might, by the hand of God, they won. So in other words, it wasn't their great horses or their powerful, you know, skills and tactics and ninja moves it wasn't that that allowed them to win the battle it was God that saved them and that was the way that the Jews would always envision or understand God's salvation or salvation or any type of deliverance or any type of being saved always was at the hand of God so that's what we're looking at here this morning is really the subject matter of Jonah being saved or delivered so the first thing we'll take a look at is that deliverance actually comes by faith We'll unpack that in a moment. Second thing we'll take a look at is that deliverance comes by confession of sin. And yet thirdly and most importantly, we're going to see that deliverance actually doing something. It's, in other words, it's not just God from the distance, from the background, simply shouting down, oh, hey, by the way, I'll deliver you. It's not God just simply giving a word or a hope or some form of verbal um, hope it was God actually doing something by way of stepping in to save Jonah to rescue and ultimately we see that unpacked in the rest in the fulfillment and the climax of the Bible so let's begin to jump in we'll take a look at deliverance coming by faith in God so first of all I want to understand a little bit and unpack the idea of what it means to have faith Uh, I touched on this a little bit last week I'll unpack it a little bit further right now but for us to understand what faith is, we've got to have sort of a working knowledge or definition of what faith is. I said last week that faith can basically be identified in three specific ways. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can define faith. Uh, Hebrews has a good working understanding of what faith is. Um, basically, what I'm going to explain kind of comes a little bit from Hebrews' passage. But faith is basically this. One, it's doubting your doubts. In other words, for us to have faith or confidence in anything or anyone... It always begins by doubting your doubts. If we're going to have faith in God, we have to have faith. It begins by doubting our doubts. In other words, there's certain things that come against us to say, you can't believe in God, you can't trust God because of X, Y, and Z. He doesn't have your back. He's not powerful. He's not loving. Uh, what you have to, first of all, understand is that you've got to learn to doubt your doubts. Learn to doubt your doubts. The second thing is that you've got to trust the facts. said last week, said again, reiterate, Faith is not just simply this blind leap into the darkness. Oftentimes we think of that, and for some reason that's made it into popular evangelicalism. 
that you know, faith is just blind leap in the darkness. I'm not sure where that comes from. It's not the Bible. But the idea of just somehow blindly trusting God or somehow blindly believing in something that's really unproven is not the way the Bible describes it. Really what faith is, is it's taking all the facts, putting them all on the table, and letting them shape the way that you think, the way that your heart uh, goes out. That's what faith is. We said this again many, many times, but the reality is that Christianity is based upon facts. It's not a myth. It's, it's not just simply a storyline like Zeus or any other type of ancient uh, Nordic philosophy or Eastern Greek philosophy or any type of Greek Nordic myth or anything like that. It's based upon fact that God actually did something. He acted in space, in time. And we have the history, we have the evidence in history to verify, to prove the facts that this actually happened. In other words, the ultimate climactic thing that we look back to and place our faith and confidence in was an event that was well recorded. Jesus' death and resurrection, well recorded. It was so powerfully and well recorded that it actually impacted the entire world. Radically changed everything. Uh, I'm not going to unpack all that right now, but the reality is, is, first of all, faith is doubting your doubts, trusting the facts. Thirdly, it's committing yourself to the one that is good. Faith is really committing yourself to the one that's good. And I described last week, I'll kind of use the same analogy again. Uh, so you're getting a little bit old school material from last week, but that's cool. Hopefully uh, it'll make some sense to you. But I said last week, it's like going to a dentist. If, for example, you had need of a root canal, and someone told you, I got a great dentist for you. He's a great oral surgeon. He does a great job. He won't leave your face numb or paralyzed or anything like that. He does a great job. He's a 100% batting record. Every single person he's ever worked on, operated on, always comes out really good, and the downtime's really short. So in your mind, you have all the facts, you have the history, you have all the evidence, all the proof, all the testimony that all you need to now go in. And so you are going to now commit yourself. You're going to commit yourself to the one that's good because you have all the facts, all the evidence. But what's going to happen now, the moment you go and you sit in that chair and you're about ready, surgery day is about to take place. Now, while you're sitting there in that chair and he's about ready to throw a mask on you or do whatever he needs to do to somehow give you the topical uh, anesthetic or whatever, you begin to look around and you begin to see these big bright lights shining down on you and these weird utensils and power saws and, you know, Dremel tools and all sorts of crazy things and needles that are that long. And you're, all of a sudden, in your mind, you're like, am I doing the right thing? I'm not really sure. Uh, now, what's happening is you're doubting. You're about ready to doubt. And you know that if you don't get this surgery, that can turn into an infection, can end up really damaging you, maybe even potentially killing you. But you know everything has been told you up until this point, all the testimony, all the evidence, all the reading, all the historical landmarks have pointed to the fact that this guy is legit. So while you're laying there in a chair and you look at all these new things, have you gotten new evidence to disprove that he's not a good, reliable, responsible doctor? You've got no, no new evidence to disprove the fact that this guy's illegit. What you have are the classic case of doubt. Why? Because you're looking at things that are unfamiliar to you. You're thinking, how in the world can that massive saw fit in my mouth? You don't need to know how that saw is going to work towards your salvation. What you need to know is you need to trust the doctor who knows how to use it. That's all you need. So what's going to keep you in that chair? You can get up, you can leave, but then you don't get the operation. What's going to keep you in that chair? Go through it again. You've got to doubt your doubts. 
got to believe the facts, and then you got to commit yourself to the one that's good. And I would say that same template fits with Christianity. All the way. Everything. That's what, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one that looks at the things that are constantly saying, you can't trust God, he's untrustworthy. You can't commit your heart to God because he doesn't really love you. You've got to doubt your doubts. Oftentimes, the problem is, is we believe our doubts. Our doubts are like heralders. They're preachers in our mind, speaking, constantly shouting at us, telling us, can't believe God. The problem is that we often believe them. Rather than putting up a defense mechanism to push them back, to push them away, to disbelieve them, to doubt them. We've got to learn to doubt our doubts, trust the facts, and then ultimately commit ourselves to the one. And let me say this as a final thought before we move on. Every one of us in this room has faith in something. Every single one of us. I was talking with a, a, a lady not too long ago, and she has been radically paralyzed by anxieties and fears. So much so, she never leaves her house. Uh, she doesn't clean herself, bathe herself. Uh, she has some very, very bad, destructive habits that are just destroying her. And when I was talking with her, one thing that kind of came up in the conversation I began to realize is that this lady has incredible faith, but not in God. She has incredible faith in the fact that she's repugnant. She has incredible fact in the faith that she's undeserving. She has incredible faith in the fact that she is a great sinner. She has incredible faith in the fact that she is worthless. She's a total believer. She has faith and confidence. She's completely committed herself to something, but not to God. It's destroying her. So the issue is not... You know, do we have faith or should I have faith? We all have faith. We all are believing a storyline, a narrative, a script, something. But some of us, what a Christian is, is a Christian is one who chooses based upon doubting doubts, believing the facts, and trusting themselves in the one whose hands are good. Uh, a Christian is one who says, I believe that. I trust that. I'll choose to believe that narrative instead of the other narrative, the alternative narrative that leads to destruction. And so, these are the people that we see, and Jonah basically believes this. And this is what we see with regard to Jonah. So, there's three different things that Jonah affirms about God. The first thing in verse 8 is that Jonah affirms the fact that God is the source of all love. This is what Jonah basically means. Read the verse again, he says this. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope with steadfast love. So, Jonah basically, in so many words, is saying is that, God, I, I know that people who worship and give themselves to these false gods, false ideas, false notions, they actually turn their back on True, unfailing love. And I was kind of thinking about this. It's almost like having a cup. And if your cup is going to be filled with good artisan water, fresh from an artisan spring, fresh water, and instead it's filled, you know, you've chosen to fill it with toilet water. Um, If you give your cup to toilet water, then you forsake fresh artesian water. Artisan, artesian, there we go. Back on track with the right words. So uh, you turn your back, you forsake the fresh spring that comes from an artesian well. Same way, that's kind of what Jonah's saying, is that God, you are the source of all love, unfailing approval and love and kindness comes from you. So he recognized that, he affirms that. Second thing, he affirms the fact that God is the source of all blessings. Because take a look at verse nine, he says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice uh, praise to you. It's actually should say verse uh, 9a. And on there, it's this idea that basically he's saying that God, you are the source of everything that's good in my life. And because of that, I thank you. 
So he's really affirming the fact that God is the source of all blessing. All blessing flows, comes from God. The third thing that we basically see that he identifies and affirms is that God is the source of all deliverance. Because the latter part of verse 9, he basically finishes his whole statement just before the uh, great fish vomits him up onto dry land. He says, salvation comes from God. So he affirms that God's the source of all love. He affirms that God's the source of all blessing, the source of all deliverance. Look, if I can put it this way, Jonah is a fundamental, Bible-believing Christian. All right? In other words, Jonah is 100% orthodox in his theology. He's not, he's not a heretic. He doesn't believe, you know, the storyline of Mormonism. He doesn't follow some sort of weird alternative cult line narrative. Jonah believes in the facts that God says and declares about himself. In other words, put it this way, Jonah, by faith, is trusting God. Here's the beauty about this. It's not the size of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not how much you believe, how big your faith is. And unfortunately, there are segments within Christianity that oftentimes can belittle you or cause you to feel as if you don't have enough faith or the reason why you're not seeing God's rich blessing in your life or certain areas of kindness displayed within your life is because somehow your faith is not big enough or it's not valid enough or it's not strong enough. But look, at the end of the day, Jesus put it with, would put it this way. He says, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, another way of saying that is Jesus is really just trying to point out it doesn't take a lot of faith. You can have a very small, proportionately very unsizable amount of faith. I mean, even if you have a desire to have faith, God will deliver you. You know what this tells me? It tells me that, again, the issue is not upon how great your faith is. The emphasis is not upon how strong your faith is. The the emphasis is placed upon the eagerness of God to deliver. Do you know that today? That God is so eager to involve himself and to bring about deliverance. He's just looking for confidence to trust him. Or even the desire to have the confidence to trust him. And then God moves. That's what we see. So first of all, deliverance comes by faith in God. Second thing, deliverance comes by confession of sin. This gets a little tricky here. Because what I see here in the text, in fact, I had an opportunity to kind of read this passage a lot of times. Um, I have a little audio app on my, or an app, a Bible app on my uh, iPhone, and it plays audio of the Bible. And so I'll listen to it a lot. And usually uh, the book of Jonah, I listen to that a lot. And uh, usually every morning, it's kind of my routine, I'll listen to that. And the whole book takes maybe like 10 minutes, 8 minutes, or something like, like, that, like that to listen to the whole entire thing. So by the time I turn the water on, to pour into my French press, and by the time my French press is done, and I got my coffee ready to be drinking, I can actually, actually listen to that passage, the entire book, actually almost like twice through. So I've listened to and read chapter 2 a lot, and here's one thing that I found that was strangely absent throughout the entire chapter, is that there is no concrete, clear, concise confession from Jonah's lips of, God, I'm sorry I screwed up. This is kind of surprising me, to be honest with you. But here's, here's my thought as I'm going through this. Is that even though there's no like straight up like, hey God, I'm sorry I ran from you. God, I'm sorry I belittled you. God, I'm sorry I thought so little of your ways. 
God, I'm sorry that I just ran from you and caused you to have to chase after me. And God, I'm sorry for all of this stubbornness and rebellion within my own heart. None of that is there. What you do see in Jonah is this slight confession. But I, w- I want to read it to you. And I re- want to read it to you out of uh, the message because I think he does a good job of kind of wording it right. It's not my favorite translation. But listen to how he puts it. He says this in the message, Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. Those who worship hollow gods walk away from their true love. But I'm worshiping you. So there is a confession. But here's the interesting thing. It's a confession of sin that Jonah sees in other people that's destroying them. It's not that Jonah's, you know, running away from confessing his own sin. I don't necessarily think that. I think what I see with Jonah is that he, at least in his prayer, affirms God as being a great God. He affirms that salvation comes from God, blessing comes from God, love comes from God. He affirms that worshiping false gods is stupid. That's really what he's saying. Worshiping false gods is dumb. But here's the interesting thing. Who is Jonah talking about when he's saying those who worship false gods forsake true love? Well, if you remember back in chapter 1, Jonah's on a boat, and the boat begins to go down. All of a sudden, all of these people on board this boat, they begin to pray to idols. And they begin to actually wake Jonah up. They're like, Jonah, pray to idols. Figure out a God to pray to because we're going to die. And so we are putting our hope, all of our confidence, and our little deities to rescue us from this great storm. And Jonah's like, no, thank you. They're like, you need to pray to somebody. And then they ask him the question, who are you? Where did you come from? What's your vocation? Why are you on this ship? Where are you going? So on and so forth. And what they're basically saying that, you know, Jonah, we need you to pray. But Jonah's like, this is stupid. Stupid to pray to false gods. Because false gods promise a lot, but deliver very little. They demand a lot, but they give back very small return. So Jonah, in this quasi-repentance, and again, what I, what, what I really want to emphasize, I don't think Jonah is in any way abdicating his responsibility to repent. I just think that Jonah's understanding what he needs to repent from is very short-sighted. He doesn't see it fully. He's not aware of it. That God has, in other words, actually sent Jonah to go preach his message to a bunch of idol-worshipping pagans, not just on a ship, but at some point in this great city called Nineveh, but yet God is confronting the idols of Jonah's own heart. And at least Jonah has enough insight to identify the foolishness of idolatry. And God says, you're free. Again, I cannot help but look at that and realize how eager God is to bring about deliverance. How eager he is. Now if Jonah kind of was in the belly of the fish and be like, I've done nothing wrong, everything's fine with me, and I refuse to melt or soften my heart before God, or refuse to humble myself before God, then Jonah really, for all intents and purposes, would never be free. Even if he was regurgitated by the fish. Why? Because he would be a slave to himself. He would never really be free. But because Jonah begins to recognize the fact that idolatry is dumb, and it actually leads to a forsaking of God's kindness, God says, that's enough. That's enough. We can work with that. It's good. All right. You're free. Free to go. You're free to go now to go preach to these people you hate. And we're going to continue the class. It's going to still go. So, 
I want to talk a little bit about unpacking this concept of idolatry again, because I realize in a lot of ways this can be a little bit foreign to us, because we can think about this. this is, if you've been around here for very long, you know that we actually talk about this stuff quite frequently. Um, if you haven't been around here, I want to unpack this for you a little bit, and if you have been around here a lot, you at least maybe like me, I, to me, this doesn't grow old, because this is where my heart's at all the time, always wrestling, always chewing, always trying to figure out and understand and deal with these idols of the heart. Um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 basically says this. It's the very first of all the commandments. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. So what one of the famous uh, preachers, some of you guys may have heard of him, his name Tim Kelly, actually had this great quote out of an essay that he had written. Take a look at the next slide. It's an essay that he had written several years ago called Talking About Idolatry in a Postmodern Age. He had some really interesting insight on this, and I want to read it to you and uh, just explain a little bit about it, and then we'll begin to unpack this a little bit further, because I don't want to just simply gloss over this concept of idolatry and then move on, because here's the thing. Here's the unique thing with uh, Jonah, is that Jonah had all the right Christian answers, but his heart was all messed up. So if, if even within this ironic twist of the story, that even the prophet is so messed up that he needs rescuing from his own issues... Uh, then that should cause us to step back a little bit and realize that, you know, just because I might have all the theological answers down, I might be like Jonah more than I think. And there may be issues that I'm struggling with or dealing with or prejudices that I have in my heart that are actually causing my heart to be unlike God's where it's swallowing me up, it's destroying me, it's consuming me and perhaps consuming others around me rather than giving life to others around me. So here's what Tim Keller says. He says, actually, in response or in reference to Martin Luther, Martin Luther, do you guys know, uh, was the guy that posted 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door and yada, 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 so the whole Reformation started. Uh, Martin Luther basically made this, I, this identification of something about the Ten Commandments. I'll read it to you. Here's what he says. So this is a statement about Martin Luther making his statement. So, the fundamental problem in breaking God's law is always idolatry. In other words, we never break the other commandments, the other nine or eight, without first breaking the law against idolatry. Next slide. He goes on and he says this. Luther understood that the first commandment is really all about justification by faith. To fail to believe in justification by faith is itself idolatry, which is the root of all that displeases God. So I want to break this down for you a little bit further. Uh, Justification by faith is a really big phrase, theological phrase, that maybe some of you might not be familiar with, but I'll break it down. The idea of justification basically means to say, there's something I believe in, something I trust in. Remember, we already talked about faith. We already kind of pointed out all of us has belief in something. But what justification means is it's the attempt, the action that basically says, it's my attempt to somehow define why I'm alive. In other words, you can look at it like this or unpack it like this. The way that you describe, the way that you answer the question as to why are you alive, why do you exist, what's your purpose, what's the meaning in your life for all about, what are you here for, the way that you answer that will come close to identifying what you worship, what you have confidence in. If you come back with the answer, God, he is the sum total of why I live. God is the answer, God is my life, God is everything to me. He rescues me. He saves me. He satisfies me. He is my peace, my shalom. He is my everything. Um, but at the same time, we can oftentimes, if we're really honest with ourselves, but the problem is we're not always really honest with ourselves. And part of the problem is we're not even always sure about what the real issue is. But often as what ends up happening is that whatever it is that we basically look at as being the means that gives our life 
meaning and purpose and identity is really what we basically are looking at to bring about justification of our lives. So for example, um, we can look at all sorts of things in our life. So if power, for example, was the thing that you looked at and says, I want to be powerful. I want people to see how powerful I am. Then if that is the main thing that basically you, if you did not have power in your life, if you came sick or deathly ill and you were not able to exercise power, then you would almost feel as if you are in hell. Because you're not able to do the things that you used to do. You weren't able to flex your might and your power the way that you used to flex your might and power. Because the very thing that was justifying your existence has been taken away from you. And now you have no existence at all because your identity was somehow so intricately linked to that particular thing. To lose that thing would be to lose life itself. To have that thing would be to have life itself. You see, that's actually religious language, meaning Christian language. To have God is to have life itself. To not have God is to have hell. And this is the reality that we live our lives in. He breaks it down like this in another article. He describes at least three different categories of false gods or idols that we have. The first category that he gives is sort of personal idols. Personal idols. He describes it like this. Trusting in money, beauty, power, romance, children. If we use these things as the means of somehow deriving uh, the substance of who we are. If we look at these things and say, without these things, I have no life. But with these things, I have life. So take a look at a handful of them. Trusting money. Is money evil? Oftentimes we would say, like, you know, money's evil. Uh, we even somehow throw out, you know, misquoted verses to prove that money's evil. Frankly, money is not evil. Money is neither here nor there. You know the funny thing is about money? Money is actually a, a man-created thing. We created it. But see, here's the funny thing is, is that when money... We create it. What gives money value? Is it the ink? Is it the printing press? The amount of time, energy, the art, artistry that goes into making the money that gives it value? No, we give it value. At some point, someone came along and like, okay, how about this with 100 on it actually is worth something, you know, worth some sort of arbitrary amount. We give it its value. But at some point, here's a crazy ironic thing with regard to money. At some point, money even though it was created by us, at some point it can actually be a God over us. Where it exercises control over us, influence over us, to the point where if you have it, you have peace. If you don't have it, you have anxiety. You are coming undone. You are disintegrating. In other words, it's taking a position of God. If you have God, you have peace. If you don't have God, you disintegrate. But money's not bad. It's not good. It just is. Beauty. Beauty is a good thing. God is beautiful. But if beauty becomes elevated to an ultimate thing, if you live your life to be beautiful in the eyes of other people, do you know what will happen? You may become anorexic. Become bulimic. Because you have to fit within an image. Because beauty is your God. And it tells you, look this particular way. Otherwise, you will not be accepted. People will not love you. You will be cast out. You'll be castigated. You'll become filth within the society. Beauty is a good thing. God is beautiful. But beauty elevated to a thing higher than God actually becomes a very cruel master over us. Crushes us. You can go down this list and look at a lot of different things. Romance. It's a beautiful thing. Love, 
affection, sex, it's good things. All good things, but elevate to a place where they become the main source by which I derive my life, my value, my identity from, then it begins to crush me. So there's personal idols. Second, we see religious idols. Oftentimes trusting in one's version of the truth. And we oftentimes see this all throughout history, that when someone comes along and says, here's my version of the truth, my version of the truth trumps your version of the truth, and my religion is better than your religion, or my view of this particular passage is better than your view of this particular passage, therefore I will oppress you and crush you and attack you and belittle you and say bad things about you, maybe burn you at the stake or you know, rape and pillage your family and your wife and your village and your kids and somehow exercise my dominance over you because of my religious power over you. Have you ever noticed how oftentimes Christians, sometimes Christians can be some of the most antagonistic, not very nice people you've ever met? And here, See, here's the thing. We can oftentimes mask the real idols in our hearts by religious garments. In other words, we can put this like little Christian barcode on my leg and be like, I'm a Christian, and I'm this tribe of Christian. I belong to this denomination of Christianity. But my heart is just as derogatory and evil and hateful and prideful and power hungry and hungry for money and hungry for sex and hungry for all of these other things because in reality I've just masked it all by Ness religious garments. Like people always like kind of bring up, you know, well, what about the Crusades? Or what about, you know, the Spanish Inquisition? I, I think that fits right there, right there. In other words, you have a lot of people that are in a socially acceptable community that says the social norm for this community is Christian stuff. Christian language, Christian Bible study, Christian stuff. The way you got to have a Christian dialogue, Christian language, Christian vocabulary. If you don't have that, then you don't fit in. And the only way for you to advance your power, for you to advance your might, your strength, your, all these other little subordinate gods you have in your life, is you need to put on the Christian garmentry in order to fit in. That's what basically has happened. It's not genuine Christian. It looks Christian because it has the label. In other words, there are religious idols that are oftentimes that are there. Cultural idols. So for example, uh, especially in the West, uh, post-enlightenment, there was sort of this mentality that said, now by way of science and education and learning, we have been able to figure out the way to gain answers for everything in this world. In other words, we can figure out all sorts of problems that have been plaguing us with regard to science, all sorts of problems that have been plaguing us with regard to uh, uh, medicine and things of that nature, technology. And look, at the end of the day, oftentimes, you know, people ask, you know, well, do I think, uh, you know, the post-enlightenment mind and education and technology and science that it's somehow all evil. And I often respond basically by saying, no, I would far rather be operated on by a post-enlightened mind than a pre-enlightened mind. All right? Some of you will get that on your way home. The point of the matter is, is that we value technology. We value this, the research that's been done in medicine. But to somehow attribute ultimate salvation, ultimate meaning by science through understanding, through wisdom, through knowledge, is to turn it all into a false god. It's hollow. It's shallow. And it can't ultimately save. It makes high demands upon us. 
We end up giving our lives for it, and yet it oftentimes pays out very little. If you were somebody in a particular status of being a venture capitalist, to be able to invest or be willing to invest in an idol would be foolish. Because it demands a lot, but pays out very little. So, as we begin to take a look at this and understand this, we begin to realize that at the end of the day, the most ironic thing that I look at with regard to Jonah, is that even though the Bible is not explicit in terms of what Jonah's idols are, in other words, there's not a verse that comes right out and says, Jonah's idol is X, Y, Z. It doesn't say that. In fact, you don't find that type of verbiage often throughout the Bible anyways. What you do find oftentimes are God saying, well, you know, the, the gods of the heathen might be like Baal, or the gods of the heathen might be uh, Molech or whatever. And now if you lived in that culture, you'd realize that those gods, those little false um, idols or those little deities, carved images, um, they themselves did not have a power. In other words, uh, this is one of the reasons why we have sort of a disconnect between our modern thinking and sort of an old thinking with regard to I- idols. Because we look at our lives and we're like, I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't worship a little statue, a little god, a little carved image. But the problem is, is that even though we don't necessarily bow down and buy a nice, some nice little you know, trinket from the store and spend some money on it and wear it around our neck and somehow bow down to it and burn incense before it, at the end of the day, even though we don't necessarily worship the, the physical statue that identifies those things, the spirit that those things stood for still exists. In other words, if you lived 2,000 years ago and your most highly valued identity or thing in life was power, you would worship the god Zeus. He's characterized by holding a lightning bolt. I mean, that's power. That's awesome when you think about that. It's like, yes, that's like the god of the gladiators. Kills people. You need to pray to that guy because that guy, that god, demigod, whatever, will give you the source of power that you need, or at least that was the idea. So you'd go offer incense or burn whatever needs to be burned or pay whatever needs to be paid in order to get that God's favor on your side. But in today's culture, we don't like go burn incense or spend money or somehow do things like that to go worship at some sort of a pagan altar or worship bowing down to some sort of little pagan deity. But does that mean that as a culture, we don't value or worship um, power? Not at all. In fact, we love power. In fact, there's cities that actually value power. Washington, D.C. happens to be one of them. Power is the God of choice in Washington, D.C. It is the political politician's God. And let me tell you how this works out. If the first commandment is broken, meaning have no other gods before me, the second commandment is if you make carved images of God's in the likeness and image of the thing that you attribute as being the highest honor of the thing, then what will end up happening are all the other uh, parts of the Ten Commandments will then begin to be broken. So, for example, if power is the deity of choice, or power is the idea of choice that you long for, that's what characterizes your life, that's what you want, you want to feel powerful, and when you don't feel powerful, you feel weak, you feel as if you're disintegrating and breaking down, that if you want power, will you lie to secure power? Lying happens to be one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. Of course you will. Will you murder if somehow someone crosses your power? Of course you will. You'll figure out some way. You'll hire a hitman, call up some sort of mafia boss, do whatever you can, or you at least maybe will murder them by way of hiring an ad campaign to smear their name. 
Because power is your ultimate thing, and it's been crossed. And when your God has been threatened, hell begins to be let loose. And you begin to break all sorts of commandments. That's what happens. So it all begins with not having any other God before the true and living God. And I would suggest that for Jonah, even though Jonah had all the religious rhetoric that he needed, even though Jonah had a clear understanding, was able to affirm the evidences of God's character in a very sound, biblical way, Jonah nonetheless, I believe, had an idolatry issue. And I think, I'd venture to say, even though, like I said earlier, the text does not explicitly say it, I would venture to say that for Jonah, the God that was a God higher than the true and living God was his own national pride. Jonah loved being a Hebrew. He loved his nation. He had a nationalistic God. He saw the Hebrews, the Jewish nation, as being greater than any other nation. He saw them as demanding more favor from God than any other nation. So when God basically comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and preach a message of repentance. I'm sure if God would have said, go to Judah and preach repentance, Jonah would have been like, yes, awesome, I'm stoked. I get to go be the hero, preach the message, get to watch Judah repent, get to watch God do some great things. My nation will get cleansed and saved and purified. But God says, no, no, I don't want you to go to Judah. I want you to go to Assyrians, your enemies. And in Jonah's mind, he immediately knows that, uh uh-oh, that means God will forgive them, God will cleanse them, they will become part of the family. In other words, the family lineage will be expanded. And in Jonah's mind, he's like, that means my nation, my national pride, the thing that I have the highest hope, the thing that I find my identity in more than anything, will somehow be eroded or broken down. I may even end up losing myself. I would rather die. So I'll throw out a verse to say why I think this is the case, and then you can just check it, test it. You should test it because, like I said, unless there's no explicit definition that this is what Jonah's idol was, all I'm simply doing is throwing out some conjectures. In the first chapter, when the ship was about to go down, the sailors basically come to Jonah and they're like, who are you? Tell us where'd you come from? Where are you going? Uh, What's your vocation? What's your trade? What are you doing here? Jonah comes out with an answer. Jonah's immediate uh, answer without hesitation is, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the true God, unlike you guys, worshiping these stupid little idols. I'm not like you. I'm nothing like you. I'll never be like you. I worship God, and I'm a Hebrew. Why didn't Jonah tell the truth? Why didn't Jonah say, oh, I'm a prophet gone rogue. That's what I am. I was called to be on God's, like, you know, pay scale. And God, I just ran. I abdicated my responsibility. I ran away. I went MI. I went AWOL because I've just gone rogue. I've turned away from God. I didn't like what God's plan was, so I did something else. He doesn't say that. He doesn't do that. He's not honest. Immediately, what comes off of his lips is almost a sense of pride. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Jew. I belong to God's unique redeemed, non-idol-worshipping family. Unlike you guys. I think Jonah's great idol in his heart was he loved being a Jew more than he loved the God who called the Jews into being. And the moment God says, hey Jonah, I got a new script, and in this new script, 
the script is going to open a back door in Judaism. The Hebrew nation is going to expand. And guess who it's going to expand to? All your enemies. Jonah's like, no! That can't be. We hate those people. They're not one of us. They don't act like us. They don't dress like us. They don't think like us. They don't worship like us. They'll ruin everything. I would rather die. As a side note, our actions are always linked to what we believe about God and what God's ultimately rule and reign in our hearts. So, Jonah, we see, is willing to run. And I want to finish with this thought. And it's this question of really identifying the fact that deliverance comes by God stepping in. So in summary, let me give two elements of summary and I'll finish with a final dilemma. The first image of pointing out the summary is that very clearly we identify the fact that salvation belongs to God and that God joyfully distributes it to whomever he wills. That God basically says, I love all people, not just the Jews. It's not just the Jews. It's not just the people that have been given the Ten Commandments. I love all people, even idol-worshiping pagans that are so lost. In in Jonah chapter 4, God actually says they don't even know. They're so blind. They're so unaware of reality. They don't even know their right hand from their left. And I love them. And I don't want to see them in their darkness, in their blindness. And I want to reach them. And salvation belongs to me. So if you think of it this way, if salvation is a commodity, meaning God has this valuable thing, he can distribute it however he wants. God says, I have all salvation, and I can deliver it to whomever I choose. And God says, I choose to not just simply uh, bestow it upon this nation of people called the sons and daughters of Abraham, but I choose to bestow it upon people that are not sons and daughters of Abraham. The second thing is we see that God basically gave deliverance to Jonah in a double way. First of all, Jonah was a Jew, meaning Jonah would have been part of the delivered family or delivered nation of people. He was a Jew. We already saw that. But secondly, God gave Jonah a second form of deliverance from the belly of this great fish. So God gave deliverance to Jonah, and then he asked him to be a, distribu- a distribution agent, really, of his deliverance, ultimately to the Ninevites. So in other words, God basically says to Jonah, hey, I rescued you. I showed mercy and grace and kindness to you, and I want you now to go be an agent to show mercy, kindness, and grace to others. Ready? Jonah's like, yeah, okay, and then runs and leaves. He says, no, I don't want to do that. I refuse to do that, which brings us finally really to this dilemma because what we find really is that before Jonah can go and confront the idolatry of the Ninevites, he really needs to be first confronted by the idolatry of his own heart, and that's part of the whole irony within his whole story is that the prophet, the one chosen by God to go communicate deliverance, needs to be delivered. So this brings us finally to the dilemma. And really the dilemma boils down to this, is that we see God intending to build this massive family, this expansive family. It's as expansive as his heart. And yet what we have is God's agent, whose heart is extremely small. So in other words, God says, hey, I got a plan. We're going to have lots of room additions to this nation. It's going to be big. It's going to be amazing. Redemption's going to be worldwide. You're going to see amazing things happen. And Jonah says, no, not through me. Absolutely not. 
I don't see a vision for that. I don't have a heart for that. I don't want that. I want your redemption, God. I want your favor. I want your love upon me and upon others, part of my nation, but not upon other nations that are not acceptable to me. That's what we have. That's the dilemma. So really, again, it goes on kind of this idea that this God who loves, he has an agent who really hates. So how is God going to share and spread and communicate the message that we have a God who's fearless, and yet we have a prophet that's full of fear, full of anxieties. So the dilemma really kind of boils down to this. How is God going to rescue these people? What is God going to do? And what we see here in the text, actually in verse uh, 9, is Jonah actually answers the dilemma to us. He tells us how God is going to intervene, how God is going to step in, what God will do ultimately to bring about the salvation that he so eagerly wants to the brokenness of all of these nations, of which sort of Nineveh was kind of the quintessential example of all other nations, even like you and I. So really what we see in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, this little phrase that just goes something along these lines, salvation belongs to the Lord. What's amazing is that word salvation in the Hebrew, it's literally the word Yeshua. It's the word Yeshua. Now, if you know anything about, you know, Jesus and his name, like, if you ever wonder, like, why is his name Jesus? Why didn't Mary call him Bob? Nothing wrong with Bob, but why, why didn't he, why didn't she call him something else? Why Jesus? The name Jesus actually is sort of the Greek form of, of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Yeshua. It's another form of basically saying Joshua. But the word basically means Jehovah or God is salvation. God is the deliverer. So the point of the matter that we need to understand is that the way that God brings about salvation in its ultimate, final, delivering type of a sense is that he steps in. This is distinct and different than just simply talking about deliverance, talking about salvation. Basically saying, hey, I have intentions to help you. I have intentions to deliver you. My desire is to somehow do something. Now, God could talk all that he wants, but what we see in Jesus is that God provided a means and a solution whereby rather than just simply talking about deliverance, what God does is something far better. God actually embodies deliverance. Deliverance is not just a verb. It's not just a word. Deliverance actually has a face, a name, a body. The ideal in Jesus became the real. The word took upon flesh. This is what we see, that Jesus comes into this world, and he, unlike Jonah, who vows to run from God, he, unlike Jonah, says, I will run to God. I will take upon myself their brokenness, their shame, their destruction, so that those who are in brokenness, destruction, and shame can be given purity, and in the place of brokenness be given a sense of wholeness and shalom in the place of defilement they can be made white as snow this is what we see with jesus deliverance actually takes upon himself the reality of what ends up happening through the cross and to the degree that we see jesus doing this what we discover is that god basically says that i have a valuable word and the way that god says i will speak this is i will come into this world and demonstrate it So if God really has a valuable treasure, how does God choose to spend that valuable treasure? And what we see is that in Jesus, God provides his greatest treasure 
to purchase us. Unlike vain idols that make high demands from you and I to give our lives over to them and promise and deliver very little. God, on the other hand, says, I will not ask of you anything except give me your life. What I will give to you, I will give you everything. I will pay the price that you couldn't pay. I will live a life that you could not live. And in exchange, I will give you my life. What we see with Jesus, unlike idols, that idols oftentimes will defile. Jesus comes and says, I will purify. Idols make high demands. And Jesus says, I will give my life to fulfill the demands. Idols give very little. Jesus gives everything to us. To the degree that you see that unlike Jonah, who he disobeyed God and fled, that you see that God's ultimate prophet, ultimate agent, deliverance actually took upon itself flesh and bone. And rather than fleeing, rather than running, he ran headlong into the storm of your brokenness, of my brokenness. And the most unbelievable good news is that God did not leave us to die in a perennial state of our own brokenness and sin. But that he did something about that. And the way he did that was he sent the son to be deliverance for us. So in the most ultimate sense, salvation comes from the Lord. To the degree that you believe that. And to the proportion that you confess the sin in your life. No matter how short-sighted it is. That's what I love about Jonah. Jonah gives us quasi-repentance. But it was the best he had in his deck of cards. We see God so eager to restore him and to deliver him. The same can be true of you. We all have faith. The question is, what are you believing in? Is what you're choosing to believe in, does it give you life or does it take your life? Is what you're believing in defile you or bear your defilement for you? Does what you're believing in set you free or enslave you? I'm going to pray. All the worship team come on up and we'll finish. We'll partake by, by, finish by partaking of communion. If you'd like, you can partake of the communion. We have some rugs in front. If you just feel like you need to get before God. We'll have some people off to the side over by the cross that would love to pray for you. So if any of you here today have issues or things or concerns or problems or maybe sicknesses or illnesses, things that you felt bound by, enslaved by, and you want to be set free, we have people that would love to pray for you. So I'm going to ask, why don't we all stand? We'll just finish up. And I'll pray. If you have kids, if you'd like to go bring your kids in, you want to, that's fine. You can have take a communion with them and sing with you. I'll pray for you guys. Let's sing. If you need prayer, get prayer. Partake of communion. Confess sins. Let's believe this message of this great God that we have. Okay? God, thank you so much for what Jesus has done for us. We want to be shaped by him. God, we realize that false gods that our hearts oftentimes are prone to worship and give ourselves to actually deceive us and then demand much from us and then crush us and yet Jesus to the total contrary gives himself for us delivers us and purifies us 
So it's you, God, that we want to give our hearts to. So help us sing.